Thank you, worship team. Some years ago, there was a, at New Park Street Chapel, a minister opened the sermon with these words. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man, and I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that a proper study of God's people is God. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly, uh, exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. But while the subject humbles the mind... It also expands it. Our aim in studying Scripture is to know God Himself better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. We must seek in studying God to behold God Himself. We're going to be giving you an opportunity beginning October 15th, to study God and to behold God himself. We're going to be offering a foundation to Bible doctrine class, and it's going to be taught by the elders, and it'll study the fundamentals of the faith, along with getting to know God better. We'll also learn how God and his ways affect our lives. We'll also be armed against some of the false teachings, whether it be of NAR or Mormonism, Islam, along with others. A sign-up's coming. It's our heart that you and I would know God better and to study his word in such a way that it would draw us to his heart. And this morning, we're going to do that very thing as well. We're going to be studying from Mark chapter 9. And if you remember a few weeks ago, if, you're, if you haven't been here, we began a study with the premise that as we approach the Gospels, it's like approaching an art gallery where we look at the master artist paint a portrait. We've looked at these portraits titled Portraits of Grace, each one having a different title, whether it be the first one, Daughter, last week, Be Not Afraid, and we read in this one a new portrait. And as we looked at them portraits, we noticed there were two right next to each other. One showed a really difficult horrific in some cases situation and then we saw how Jesus came and transformed it in this gallery we call the gallery of grace in Mark chapter 9 we're going to be reading verses 14 through 29 I hope you'll follow along with this amazing passage this amazing account verse 14 reads and when they came back to the disciples they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them and immediately when the entire crowd saw him, that being Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? 
How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean, unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And when he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for this account, this true story of how you stepped in to this dad and this son's life. You transformed it. We not only, Lord, want to study for knowledge, that's good, but we study even for a loftier goal. It's to know you better, to hear you clearer, so we may love you more deeply. So Holy Spirit, guide us in these moments. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is a remarkable encounter for a lot of reasons. But one of the, the reasons, or one of the, the ways we study Scripture, I introduced a few weeks ago, and it's the, really the first step in studying Scripture is observation. It's looking at a text and beginning to ask questions. It's actually entering into the text, not reading as some academic book, but trying to place ourselves in there and think of what how we'd react, and, and, and if we were the dad, if we were the son, and try to understand the heartbeat of the text. And so let's do that. We have a vividly sketched scene. And the setting is we have disciples. We're told they're scribes, they're certain bystanders, and they're engrossed in a debate. Now the presence of scribes suggests they're perhaps there to gather evidence against Jesus. They seem to have that as their goal. If that's true... The dispute undoubtedly concerns the disciples' authority and even attempting to cast out a demon. That's just speculation. But what I find really remarkable is all the gospel accounts, this happens after Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, he comes down with the three disciples. Why is that significant? Well, think about it for a moment. Coming from the mountain of God's glory to the valley of man's depravity. That's quite a contrast we have here. In other words, that when God showed his glory, we see man in his sin and the ugliness of the world which we live because sin has entered it. We have a dad with a son overcome by demonic power. Verse 17 and 18 tell us the disciples, the father, the scribes, and the son, they couldn't do anything about this. They were powerless. 
they had nothing to offer this dad by way of helping his son. And so intense is the debate. We're not, we don't really see Jesus coming at first. It's, it almost seems like they're amazed. They finally see him come, and it says they run up to him. They're in the midst of arguing, and then some of them begin to see Jesus approach, approaching, and they're amazed, and they run up to him. Now, as we looked at those who are amazed at his presence, perhaps they've heard about what he's done, but obviously there's an element of wonder, and, and what will he do next, perhaps? And so this crowd is gathering around him. And as we observe this text, let's look at some of the characters. First, we have the disputing scribes. They're present at other times in Jesus' ministry, and often it's marked by an official envoy sent to investigate his claims so activity. Some suggest, verse 16, that Jesus' question, what are you discussing with them, is actually addressed to the scribes. We don't know that for sure. But whoever it is, they're silent at the question. We're introduced in verse 17 and verse 21 through 24 to this father. He comes across as a doubting father. He says in verse 17, one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son. A cross-reference in Luke 9, 38 says, My only boy. Gives us a little more information. So here comes a dad, and he's bringing to Jesus his only boy. Let that sink in. This is it, his only, his only son. While other dads were teaching their sons how to play ball, maybe teaching them a trade, this dad's just trying to keep his son alive. The role of this father was reduced to that of just a caretaker. Robbed of the simple joys of parenthood, robbed of all the hopes and dreams and aspirations of, that a father has for his son, robbed of all the little boy noises, of the childish questions, all the playful laughter, of all the father-to-son talks. Anxious questions lingered. As I try to put myself in this dad's shoes, the thought would have come to me, what happens when his mother and I are no longer here? Who's going to take care of him then? I mean, what happens if these convulsions become so intense and so great that we lose him? I mean, those questions had to have gone through a parent's mind, right? We're parents. We were in that situation. We would have those fears and anxieties as well. And as we look at this dad, we see his request of Jesus, which in essence is a prayer, it's pretty feeble. Not really much to it. And his request, his prayer only comes after yet another convulsion. It's almost as if it's a last resort. And certainly this prayer, this request is more meek than mighty. And certainly as we look at it, it's more timid than towering. And maybe that prayer... Sounds like yours. Pretty feeble, but there it is. At least it's honest. So don't be discouraged because this is where prayer starts. And I don't know in the dad's mind if that doubt was mingled with the thought of, Jesus, I'm bringing my boy to you, and maybe this is out of your league, but I'm running out of options. We're not quite sure what went through his mind. We do know that he comes, perhaps with an illusion of faith, 
But there's this hardness of reality that he's facing. And this hardness of reality hits, and only faith in God will stand. And although it's a feeble prayer, it's a prayer nonetheless. And while the prayer isn't much, the answer is. And it reminds me that power is not in the prayer, but in the one who hears it. Right? Power isn't our prayer, it's in the God who hears the prayer. And we learn that here, clearly. Now as we go into this text and look at how Jesus deals with this demon, or as we talked about last week, the, the miracles we see him perform, I don't believe that this Jesus' work here, and whether casting out demons or miracles, is a pattern for us today. I don't believe it points to a pattern, it points to a person, Jesus Christ. That he would be worshipped, that he would be glorified in it. And so that's, we don't want to miss that part of it. Another character in this account, obviously, is this demon-oppressed, this demon-possessed boy. We know he's mute. Some of the information is he's epileptic, he's possessed by an evil spirit. Luke 9, 39 records it this way. The dad says, and behold, a spirit seizes him, and it suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and it mauls him. It scarcely leaves him. Try to imagine this boy's life. Now, I've had seizures before, and they do. They hit you suddenly. You never see them coming. One time at Bible camp, I was driving a pontoon, having a wonderful time being a counselor. Next time I woke up, we're on shore. I have no idea what happened. It just hits you suddenly. But these boys are so much more intense. The question needs to be asked, how did this image of God get so marred? How did he become so defeated? These seizures that come upon him are sporadic, They're sudden, and when they attack, he's thrown into a frothing fit, grinding his teeth, foaming at his mouth like a rabid animal. How did this image of God get so marred? The violence of the seizures and and this reference to the repeated attacks and attempts to destroy the youth. Imagine this, by hurling him into fire and water. Can you imagine that poor boy waking up from some of these or, or finding those moments which I'm sure were few of clear-mindedness, whether there be the burns or whatever, the after-effects, trying to wonder what's going on. Can you imagine the fear of this boy? Amazing, as we try to ponder what he went through. But here we learn the purpose of demonic possession. It's to destroy. It's to distort the image of God and man and to hold capture that which is dear to God. In the past, somehow... Some way we're not told, the forces of darkness gained a foothold in his life. And be sure, this is our adversary, the devil in the demonic realm. This is who they are. They come to bully, they come to brutalize, they come to destroy. We have an enemy. We tend to forget that. We're told in John 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He's on a destruction mission, and his, his object, his target, the child of God. People made in God's image, that's who he attacks. And this destruction is heaped upon a child. It serves to indicate how radical the issue is between demonic power 
and Jesus, the bestower of life. Ephesians 6, 12, somebody mentioned this verse to me, and I couldn't, it came to my mind again as I was studying this. You know, as we go through life, oftentimes, we're, we face spiritual attacks. We face times where we, we sense there's the enemy behind some of the things we face. And oftentimes, it's maybe encounters with people, conflict. And Ephesians 6, 12 gives us a good reminder. For our struggle's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. People are not our enemy. The demonic realm is. And certainly we see that right here. Your situation, my situation, our battles are not with people. Ultimately, it's a spiritual battle. I came across this quote. I appreciated it about this. One commentator says, this whole story is a sobering reminder of the danger of how evil and the enemy can root itself in our lives. For the enemy in his desire to steal delights in his tyranny gives him a false sense of sovereignty. This is his way. To bully, brutalize, and prey on the weak. And like a lion, he cunningly stalks his prey, singling out, it seems, the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable ones and ruthlessly runs them down. 1 John 3, 8, though, says, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's good news for you and I. And so we have this boy, certainly, one of the main characters in this. Then we have these defeated disciples. Verse 18, the words of this man carry much despair. He had put a lot of hope in bringing his son to the disciples. At the end of verse 18, and I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. I mean, you can almost hear the despair in there. I'm out of options. I heard your disciples were casting out demons and and, and performing miracles, and I heard about that, and I thought, great, my son, there's hope, and they couldn't do it. And I'm, and I'm here again, a desperate dad with a son who's being attacked. Disciples found themselves inadequate to the resistance they faced. I don't know, perhaps past successes gave them a false sense of self-sufficiency. Hey, we did it once, guys, piece of cake. Let's just pray, name it, and claim it, boom, it'll happen. Seems to indicate the end of verse 29, they didn't pray when attempting to cast out the demon. Maybe they played disciple but didn't pray like one. And as we look at the characters, I have to ask, where's the faith in this story? I mean, think of the scribes. They seem almost amused by this encounter. The demon certainly appears victorious. The father desperate. The disciples failed. We're hard-pressed to find even a needle of belief in this haystack. We don't see faith. And no wonder at the end of verse 9, there's this cry of exasperation from Jesus, this expression of weariness, of walking among a people who refuse to believe. As Jesus walks, I'm sure, heartbroken at what he sees. But then the master picks up a brush. And he paints a different portrait of what we just read. This life-changing encounter 
He addresses more than one need here. It's not just the boy Jesus addresses. Let's start with the father. For a dad robbed of parenthood, a man whose faith began as an appeal, almost seemingly without any faith, at least he's honest. And he learned something significant that day. He learned that power is not in his request or in his prayer, but in Jesus who answered it. Prayer is really, if you think at the most core, it's inviting God into our situation and believing he's big enough to transform it. And I think in verse 21, his question to the dad, how long has this been happening to him, is not necessarily Jesus seeking seeking information. He already knows that information. But it's a question of compassion. I think it's inviting the Father, inviting him to seek the Deliverer. To come to him. In verse 23, I'm reminded when we respond in faith, God's omnipotence becomes our sole assurance. And God's sovereignty becomes our only restriction. It's a wonderful thing we learn in prayer. William Lane said these words, What is to be tested in the arena of experience is not Jesus' ability but the Father's refusal to set limits to what can be accomplished through the power of God. In its struggle with temptation, faith must always free itself from the disastrous presumption of doubt in the certainty that with God, nothing is impossible, and that His majesty becomes most visible when human resources have become exhausted. And as you and I look at verse 23, The affirmation is not that faith can accomplish anything, but that those who have faith will set no limits on the power of God. How do we pray? Do we pray big enough? Do we pray as if with God all things are possible? Therein lies the question you and I have to face. So with the Father, we see God working in even his life as he deals with the faith in his life. God's omnipotence is soul assurance when we go to prayer. God's sovereignty is our only restriction. Now verse 22, and has often thrown him, his son, both into the fire and into the water, destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us. Notice it's not just the son. The dad says, would you have pity? Would you have compassion on us? For the father too, as you can imagine, has been through much. And so we see this life-changing encounter with the Father as he stands before Christ, and there's this interaction. And Jesus says, with me all things are possible. Just believe. But it's not just the dad that there's a transformation, obviously, with the son. This boy who's been robbed of childhood, a prisoner of an enemy. And again, I can't help but wonder the confusion of this boy. We're told in verse 25, if you read it again, and when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying that you deaf and dumb spirit, I command you come out of him and do not enter him again. We're told as the boys brought to Jesus, this spirit saw Jesus and throws him into another convulsion. Jesus double rebuked deaf and mute might have been prompted by a display of contempt for Jesus exhibited by the Spirit. More than likely it is. The power of God seen in the violent confrontation 
which left the boy lying still. Demonic realm's not too concerned with you and I. But the presence of Christ in our life, that they can't stand against. They can't stand against Christ, and we see it here again. And as I read this, and I see what Jesus did, you deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out in verse 26, after crying out, throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. He's dead. And that's the conclusion. Probably the father's worst fear that one time he's not going to make it through these convulsions. And maybe seemingly in that one moment this was the time. Or maybe those who knew the dad thought this was the time. The boy's dead. But as I read this, my mind went back to another account in Jesus' life. When he rebuked the waves... And he demonstrated his power over nature when he calmed the raging sea. And here, I see Jesus calm a tormented soul. And when he calmed the raging sea, he showed his power and his authority over nature. And here, he shows his power and authority over the supernatural. In other words, there's no realm in which God can't affect things with his power. Luke 9, verse 27 gives us, or verse 42 gives us a unique order. And I love the picture. It says Jesus rebuked the spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. Isn't that a neat picture? I mean, of complete transformation, this marred image now being restored. This new life is now one of wholeness. This boy, hand in hand, both with the Savior and with Dad. What a gracious thing we see Jesus do. What a powerful thing we see Jesus do. Redemption in Christ. This progressive recovering of God's image until Christ's return. Where the promise is there will be a complete restoration of God's image. That'll be realized as we live with him in eternity. And so we can't help but notice the transformation of this young boy. Verse 27, the conclusion is he's dead, explanation point. But not with Jesus, he's got the last word. He took him by the hand, raised him, and he got up. Amazing. And so we're amazed at this encounter, and and the dad gets his son back. And we see the transformation of the dad and the son. But, but then we see, really, a change in the disciples. Because as they look at this thing, they're scratching their head. They remember, how come we couldn't do that? I mean, we tried. We prayed. We had success in other encounters. But this one, what went wrong? And so instead of just wondering, they decide to ask. Verse 28, when he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? Legitimate question. Failure. Disciples had been tempted probably to believe that they could handle it. I don't know, isn't that really what happens when we cease to pray? When we begin to go about life as if we got this thing under control. 
And how do you know we live that way? Because when things get tough, finally we call out to God. Almost as if he's kind of our bail, get out of jail card free. We live life six of the seven day weeks on our own, trusting our abilities and, and our successes and saying, I got this, I got this, and all of a sudden curveball comes into our life. Tragedy, difficult times, and now all of a sudden, we're like, ah, oh, can't handle this one. And then finally we go to God. Yeah, we can relate to the disciples. Matthew 17, 19 through 20 says this about this encounter. Disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Listen to Jesus' answer. Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, apparently they didn't even have that, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing will be impossible to you. And as we put that with this passage in Mark, nothing's impossible to you because nothing's impossible to God. Because that's the one who answers the prayer. It's not our prayer. It's the one who answers it. And so this, this work in the disciples' life begins to take place. And I couldn't help again think how tempted we are like the disciples to think we can go it alone. Our self-reliance, there must be a transformation to God-reliance. To the dad, to the son, to the disciples, and to us, the message is the same. All things are possible to him who believes. We would be wise to pray with that truth in our mind. Because as I think about these lessons that come out of this portrait, I find really three. One is about prayer. And as I look at this account, we asked it earlier, what prayer? What prayer really made the difference? There's really only one prayer mentioned, one request mentioned. It's the one from a dad, a hurting dad. And I'm once again reminded, as I mentioned earlier, because I think we need constant reminder, the power of our prayers is not in the one who speaks them, but in the one who hears them. Don't ever forget it. Faith's only, if I guess for lack of a better word, effective. Faith only matters when it's a faith in the one who hears. So there's a message about prayer. There's a message about faith. Faith is inviting God into your situation, believing he is big enough to transform it. As I mentioned earlier, our sole assurance is in God's omnipotence, which means he's all-powerful. That's our assurance. But it also knows that our only restriction is his sovereignty. We could pray with great assurance and great faith. We can stand, we can rest on the promises of God in his power and his plan. There's certainly a lesson about Christ and about God. That God's greatness is seen in his power over the supernatural. He can calm the storm of a tormented soul. Luke 9.43, it says, after this miracle, all the people were amazed at the greatness of God. When all is said and done, that's the goal. Is it not that God's greatness would be on display? That he would get the glory? 
But you and I need that reminder of Jeremiah 32, 17, which so ties into this text. Oh, Lord God, behold, you made the heavens. You made the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. And Jeremiah's conclusion, nothing is too difficult for you. Don't forget that in your situation. As the song says, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. Nothing is too difficult for you. He has never met his match, and he never will. Jesus paints a portrait here. And the title of this one, All Things Are Possible. Let's not forget it as we go about our life, in our prayers, in the way we react to situations. In this portrait title, All Things Are Possible, once again is a portrait of grace. Let's pray. Lord, i got to believe that there's times, if we were honest, we've all wondered whether our prayers even matter. Maybe you've wondered whether they can even make a difference in our situation. Lord, may this portrait of grace cause us to wonder no longer. Your power is unlimited. Your grace unending. With God, all things indeed are possible. We praise you this day for that truth. Lord, for my brothers and sisters, I pray you'd meet them in their situation, in their circumstances. And maybe they're not quite as dire as this dad or this son's, but all too real to them. Whatever their hardship is, God, whatever the confusion might be, I help, I pray that you'd help them to hear that message this morning. With you, all things are possible, and there is nothing too difficult for you. In the quietness of their hearts, even right now, and as they go about their weeks and days, might your spirit continue to impress upon their mind that with you, all things are possible. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.